You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Multi-detector CT scanning. It's the newest innovation in CT, and the capabilities of this new technology have a significant impact on our abilities to diagnose diseases at earlier stages. Earlier detection means patients and their doctors can potentially begin medical or surgical intervention sooner, often with more positive results. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill. Joining me today is Dr. Michael Sadler, Section Chief of Body CT Imaging and Associate Professor of Clinical Radiology at New York Medical College. Welcome, Doctor. Well, hi. Thank you very much for having me, Larry. You're welcome. Michael, can you tell me a little bit about what this new scanning is all about? CT scanning started back in the 70s and 80s. And back then, acquiring an image took a very long period of time. Basically, it's extremely technical, and there's an awful lot of physics involved. But there was one detector, one scanner, and basically one study could be done every couple of hours, if not longer. Basically, to get the computers to get an image that was recognizable as a portion of the human body took a very long period of time. And with the advent of helical CT, which came out in the late 80s and 90s, we basically could do it much quicker. And now, multi-detector CT basically uses a large number of CT detectors. Started with four, went to eight. Sixteen right now, the majority of machines in the, in the U.S. are utilizing. But I'm sure you and your listeners have heard 64, and even more, 128 detector scanners are even now on the horizon. Basically, it allows the image to be acquired much faster and for more studies to be done. Is a 64-slice CAT scanner a synonym for a multi-detector CAT scan? Absolutely. Any of the above that I just mentioned, to be honest with you, Larry, are multi-detector, be it two, be it four, really refers to the number of images that can be acquired per turn of the tube, for lack of a better description. So currently, if you send one of your patients for a CT scan at at an imaging center or hospital near you, Pretty much, I would guess that they are using multi-detector technology, be it a 4-detector, be it a 16, or possibly a 64. Best way to find out, what I, you know, what I encourage the referring physicians where I am, I'm at St. Vincent's Hospital in, in New York City, is basically to just call and ask, or better yet, have your office manager call and ask any of the potential radiology sites that any of your patients may go to and get a feel for what kind of equipment they have and what they can do with it. Because that's the real key here, Larry. Yeah, the North Shore of Chicago, uh, when one hospital gets a 64-slice scanner, they all get one the next week. So we're pretty well to do with our 64-slicers up here. Absolutely. You know, the real upshot, the way that this benefits you and it benefits your patients, um, you being basically you as a referring physician, is studies can be done much quicker and Basically, we can now look and do things in a manner that no one dreamed of, say, 20 years ago. And what do I mean by that? Well, basically, back, back then, back in the days of the giants, for lack of a better term, we would acquire images very slowly, and they would be very thick. In other words, a centimeter of tissue would be about as good as we can get in terms of resolution. And that may sound pretty good. And frankly, back then, it was the best we had. Now, when you use more detectors and you scan faster, and the computer programs are that much better, we can go down below a millimeter um, in terms of how, how um, thick our slices are. 
um, in our reconstructions. And the implications there are enormous for things such as vascular-type studies, um, looking at small branches of the SMA, say, as they're feeding um, intestines, looking for ischemic, ischemic change. Or when doing a pulmonary embolism study uh, in some of the patients of the ER with shortness of breath, we can actually go down to some of the smaller branch vessels and get a pretty good look at whether they're patent or not with this new technology. So are you, as a result of that, are you diagnosing more and more pulmonary emboli that were prior missed? Well, that's an excellent question. And I think it's a controversial topic right now. And I think, I think right now, yes, to answer your question, I think we can pick up, certainly pick up small lobar or segmental emboli. And I think no one will argue that. I think the real controversy in this is when you go out to the subsegmental and the really very small peripheral branches, if you see something that is for sure a pulmonary embolism, in other words, if you show that to a bunch of radiologists and they all say, you know what, that's real. I have different clinicians who will say to me, you know what, I'm not going to treat this. I have others that say to me, my gosh, this is a great find. We've got to treat this. So I think that to answer your question, yeah, I think we are picking up on the segmental level, but then when you get smaller than that, I think the jury is out, and more clinical studies are going to have to be done to decide whether um, we are doing a service, picking up these very, very small, questionably clinically significant emboli. You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Caskell, and I'm with Dr. Michael Sadler. Section Chief of Body CT Imaging and Associate Professor of Clinical Radiology at New York Medical College. Dr. Sadler, in this era of multi-detector CAT scanning, what is the incidence of incidentalomas doing? We spend so much of our time, Larry, you, that, um, picking up things and trying to decide what is the significance of this. And I'll give you a couple of examples um, in our everyday practice. Um, the incidentaloma back years ago was, was a rare find. Basically, we, what we found when we were looking at a one-centimeter thick slice, basically, is there pathology? Is there not? We were answering questions as best we could. Now, well, with these very thin images, and we're taking our images down now, routinely down to 1.25 millimeters when I look at a study, um, we are starting to pick up small liver lucencies, we're starting to pick up small renal lucencies and adrenal lucencies. And the question then is, and that's where it really takes a lot of our expertise, is this something that we point out? Is this something we follow up on? Or is this something, eh, you know what we've picked up? We, it's probably a cyst. I don't think we're going to I don't really think that this is significant. So to answer your question, incidentalomas are, are becoming a, a real major thing, and it, it depends on the experience, I think, of the clinician and the radiologist what to do about that. And I'll give you an example. We are finding now, in our practice especially, and I think most radiologists will say, um, the incidental adrenal nodule, which, my gosh, before CT came on board, no one really quite knew how many adrenal nodules were out there. They do, there were plenty of autopsy studies and cadaver-type of studies, but... CT brought on board the fact that a large portion of the population have um, adenomas, and a good portion of those are lipid-rich, and we can actually see them on CT as a lipid-containing structure. 
what do we do about them? And that's the question that comes up. Basically, we found different ways of evaluating them using their density to decide whether they are something which really requires another study, perhaps an MRI, or something basically we can tell the clinician there's a one-centimeter adrenal nodule consistent with an adenoma. Basically, you don't need to worry about it. Is that when you use house field units? Absolutely, absolutely. Basically, Dr. Hounsfield, who discovered this at EMI in England back in, and really did his research in the 60s and 70s, realized that once you take a piece of tissue and put the computer on it, you can get a density of it. And he arbitrarily picked water density as zero. So something in the body that's water density, be it bile, be it a cyst in the liver or the kidney, will typically be, well, back with his original scanner, it was zero. There's now a bit more of a standard deviation, so pretty much I use between minus 5 and about 30 now as my numbers where I can comfortably say something is water density. And basically that standard deviation comes along with some of the variability you'll get with a thinner slice section and the faster tube motion. What does something like calcium come out as? Thousands. Very, very high. Typically, when Hounsfield set this up, he wanted everything to be fairly tight so that you've got water at zero, you've got fat at minus 20, and soft tissue, be it liver, be it muscle, is typically anywhere between 50 and 100. Bone, calcium, that kind of stuff goes way up above 750, above into the thousands, just depending on how dense it is. Dr. Sadler, why do you guys ask so many questions about uh, IV and oral contrast? Every day, we, we, have, a situ- we have situations in, in CT where patients will come in with a request, and for whatever reason, there's a contraindication to their not to getting that study that day. And that becomes a major problem for us in terms of our scheduling and for the patient who, who may have taken a day off from work in order to come and do it. And the last thing in the world they want is to be rescheduled and then have to do it, take another day off or, or whatever. So basically what we do, and I have my residents do, and it, it works, works very well for us in our practice, is to make sure that we try to educate the clinicians and their office staff, because quite often we know that it's an office staff member, be it one of the receptionists or nurse practitioner, whoever, is actually ordering these things. So basically, we ask questions about creatinine because that's sort of that's a relative measure of patient's renal function. And back in the old days, iodinated contrast was potentially quite nephrotoxic. So the last thing in the world we wanted to do is give someone who may have borderline creatinine or borderline renal failure a big bolus of iodinated contrast and then put them into ATN. Much less of a problem these days because we have newer non-ionic and different types of contrasts, but still worth asking. So we tend to, any patient who's a non-diabetic with a creatinine of uh, 1.5 or above, we tend to be careful with and not like to give contrast. That's the conservative number. Uh, we, we use basically, some places go up as high as two, and it just depends on your experience. Other things we ask about prior to injecting patients are myeloma patients, for the longest time, for fear of causing them to have Benz-Jones proteinuria and have that react with the contrast and put them into florid renal failure, we would absolutely not inject those patients. And that's, that's kind of changed a bit now. Um, we have a myeloma center at, at St. Vincent's, and 
basically we know which myeloma patients can and can't get IV contrast, and it's based on whether they're secretory or not. For you know your your listeners who have myeloma patients, it's really a matter of yeah, basically when they fractionate the proteins. If they have Benz Jones protein, we do not. If they have a, a significant amount of that, we we don't inject them. Fortunately, that's the minority. So we do inject uh, the majority of myeloma patients. And a couple of the other things where we just sort of be careful with the sickle cell patients, we will inject, but we hate doing it when they're in crisis and they have to get hydrated quite a bit afterwards. I think, you know, pretty much in this day and age, that's what, that, those are the, some of the keys that we look at. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Michael Sadler, who joined us today to discuss multi-detector CT scanning. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.